I, I killed at my father's funeral. Really? And then the rabbi went on after me and tried to, tried to do some time. And I said, Rabbi, you never want to follow the headline. <laughs> and that got another laugh. I mean, I, I, I destroyed at my father's funeral. Welcome to How To. I'm Charles Duhigg. Each week on this show, we talk to listeners like you who are trying to figure out how to solve one of life's problems, like how to withstand pain or, or how to fire a bad employee or how to find your soulmate. Then we track down an expert and we get their advice and we see if it helps. On today's episode, we're tackling a question that all of us at some point try to answer, how to be funny. We got interested in this after hearing from this guy in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, named Aaron Kirkpatrick. I'm a 35-year-old pastor at a, a Church of Christ in Oklahoma. Uh, you know, I, I get up in front of about 250 people every week uh, to, to preach, and humor is, uh, I think, a central part of that, or at least I want it to be. Aaron wants to know how to be funny because he thinks that humor and being entertaining, it can help him reach more of his congregation. I want people when they show up to enjoy the experience and to engage every part of their emotions, including humor. You know this feeling, right? Humor gets people focused on you and it keeps them interested in what you're saying. But being funny is really hard to do well. Are there rules for writing the perfect joke? What have all those comedians figured out that makes them so compelling to watch? And because Aaron is a pastor and he's this nice, optimistic, sunny guy, I turned to the most logical place for advice, a Jewish New York comedian who makes jokes about his clinical depression. Please welcome Gary Goldman. Gary Goldman has been performing in comedy clubs and on late night TV for 25 years. He's revered by audiences and other comics. Thank you. Wow, that was really nice. Patton Oswald, in fact, once said, if he could only steal one joke in this entire world, he would plagiarize from Gary. But Gary says his career didn't really start so well. He still remembers the first time he got up on a stage to perform stand-up way back in the early 90s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like it was yesterday. It's so so crazy. So, okay, so tell yeah. me, who were you at that point? Like, okay, what? I was a... I, by day, I was an auditor for what is now PricewaterhouseCoopers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the, the, like, always known as fertile territory for comedians. <laughs> so how old were you the, when you get up on that stage? You're living in... Boston at that point? Yeah, I was living in Boston okay. with, my, with my mom, and I was 23. It was open mic night. You had to bring either three or four friends to get on stage, which I thought was reasonable. Gary says that most of his first show was terrible. It, it was just awful. The jokes didn't land at all. The, the audience wasn't responding. It felt like the night was going to be a total disaster. Even even the crickets were tugging at their at their ties, and, and they they didn't even make noise. The cri- the crickets were silent, and if you had taken my a poll of of my my mind at that time, I would have said, oh okay, oh well, this isn't going to work out. <laughs> and then I went into my next joke, which was a, an impression of of Robert De Niro, and they loved it. Really? They loved it, and they laughed and applauded, and it was I, I was never the same after that. I was addicted. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Everything in my life, and I'm exaggerating, of course, but <laughs> let's say that most of the things in my life since that night have been geared to becoming a better comedian. 
Well, and, and, and as you know, today this guy's going to be calling in asking uh-huh. for advice about yes. how to be funny. Yeah. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you about, if I had a tape of yeah. you side by side, your first performance yeah. versus three years in when you finally have that confidence, right? what would be different? What would I, um, what did you learn to do? Well, after you've learned how to swing a baseball bat and you've swung it hundreds of, of times, it's smoother. There's nothing from my first two years of comedy that made it to my first television appearance, which was six years in. Huh. Everything else, I, I would say it's, it's useless, it's, except for the fact that it was so useful because it got me on stage every night right. to become a, a better comedian. It's, it's, I compare it to music where you need to learn the scales before you, you can play. So Gary spent years learning how to play his instrument. And eventually, he started getting gigs on late-night TV, including on Conan O'Brien, where one performance in 2016 became an internet sensation. Thanks very much. I just wanted to uh, recommend a documentary to everyone, and then, and then I'm going to go. Um, <laughs> it's, about the, uh, it's about the men and one woman who abbreviated all 50 states down to two letters. All you, all you have to know for this is that we have 50 states in America, and they each have a two-capital-letter abbreviation. But that, that wasn't always the case. Up until, I want to say 1973, and so I will. Uh, <laughs> up until 1973, every state had its own length of abbreviation, and it was chaos. Like Massachusetts was MASS period, Florida was FLA, Utah was Utah. <laughs> they just dropped the H, not much of an abbreviation. So, so, so take me step by step. How did you come up with that joke? I mean, I first had the premise, which is, gee, a lot of states start off with the same first two letters that just comes into your mind one day like sort of yes and the first part of it was the guys trying to abbreviate the states and they immediately come into trouble after the first state they started off they thought it was going to be easy because alabama lulled them into a false sense of security they said alabama al holy crap this is easy we're going to finish before they stop serving breakfast in the hotel restaurant and then it, and, the and then there was nothing. There was nothing. And every once in a while, I'd I'd pull it out of the off the shelf and and rework it and add a line. But I could never find an ending or structure to that joke. And then maybe 18 years later, all of a sudden, documentaries were about small things. They used to. They were only about Hitler forever. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I saw this documentary about Helvetica. And I wrote a joke about the documentary about Helvetica. Here's Gary's first rule for how to be funny. Focus on the small things. Novices like me, we tend to look for these big, exaggerated topics to joke about. But the funniest stuff often comes from the most mundane parts of life. One night I said, what if I did this thing that never works? That never works, the abbreviation thing. What if I try this and tell the people it was a, it was a documentary? In, in between the first time I got on stage and that night, I had learned an important thing in comedy, which is it's okay to lie. It's okay to lie. You can lie about anything as long as it helps the joke. There's something called artistic license, which I had never understood and I had never heard it applied to, to jokes. And, and that changed everything. And so I said, I'm going to lie and tell them that this is a documentary. Thinking that part of the funny would be them figuring out that this isn't real. Right. But I still get 
emails and tweets, hey, where can I find that documentary about the abbreviation? <laughs> and then one guy said, oh, I hope they have an omelet station. Just, just for context, the omelet station had just been invented. And, it was, and, and then you go into this long, linny story about the omelet chef. And this other guy said, you know what, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with the omelet station because I, I feel like the omelet chef resents you. <laughs> Like, he didn't want to be the omelet chef. Nobody dreams of being an omelet chef. He wanted to be the chef chef. Now instead, of, now, instead of giving the orders, he's taking the orders from your stupid wife and your ugly kids. And I think one day he's going to snap, and I don't want to be there when it happens. And then the boss said, um, guys, I hate to be a nudge, but could we get back to abbreviating the states? We still have 49 left. And apologies were made, and an understanding was reached, and they got back to abbreviating. And they said, what's next? They said, Alaska. Everybody cool with AL? But somebody caught it. You have to make people forget that Alabama was AL and then remind them that Alabama was AL. But the interesting thing about the joke in between that is that it was from 20 notebooks prior to that. I could never make a joke about the, the disgruntled, hostile omelet chef I had on vacation one time um, that I totally... I totally identified with and totally got it why she was so miserable. She, and I, to the point where I loved omelets and I wouldn't go to the omelet chef because she was so surly. The next rule is, once you have a mundane idea, push it to an extreme. A and then get it in front of an audience as fast as you can to see if it's actually funny. I always tell comedians at every level, don't spend two hours writing this joke that you've never tried out on, on stage before. Write down two or three sentences that you have confidence that you think may get a laugh tonight. Oh, that's interesting. And then if that premise works, then, then I'm off to the races. So what's next? Arizona, AI, there we go, we're back on track. Next, Arkansas, shit. Uh, no, we'll come back to it. It's not going to happen again. What's next? California, CA. There we go. Next, Colorado, CO. Momentum, Connecticut. <laughs> we are screwed. Because it's so hard to get a new joke to work. It's the hardest thing in, in stand-up comedy. It, it literally drove me mad for years. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I think it really contributed to my to my eventual hospitalization. For I'm not exactly. I was really? in the hospital for depression and anxiety, and and part of it was writer's block. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there are chemicals involved as as well, but I yeah. I know that part of the part of the thing when when I was going through that was just despair over not being able to. It was it was almost right after that abbreviations joke too, which may have been coincidence, but it was also like I'm never gonna write a, another good joke. It took me 20 years to write that one. That's fascinating that... That I went crazy, yes. <laughs> because you felt like that joke was so good or because... Like, no, because I, I, I also thought it was really, really flawed and I also felt that I had that I'd blown it and I cringe when I watch it. So it, that, that, that really bummed me out. It was the best joke I had. I kind of choked, I felt. And um, how am I going to come up with, a, with a, another one? People said, how are you going to abbreviate will not, not use a single L? And he said, watch me. <laughs> are you saying I won't be able to do it? I just did. <laughs> Thank you very much. So Gary's actually being kind of tough on himself here because people love this joke. In fact, they adore it. It's all over the internet. But let's say, let's say he did blow it. That actually leads us to another rule. If you try a joke and it bombs, that's totally okay. 
In, in fact, that could be great. I'll never forget for my bar mitzvah, my mom took me to see Johnny Carson, and he stumbled through a joke. He made fun of it in the moment, and then at the commercial break, he talked about it again, and it humanized him. And just by acknowledging the fact that a joke bombed, you can get laughs, and you can make everybody really, really comfortable with you by by taking a moment to say, wow, that, that sounded much better in my head, or, or whatever it is that you want to want to say, and it's, a, it's an honest moment, and it's so endearing. Okay, here's the next rule. Be self-deprecating and honest. And finally, Gary says, find an easy crowd, like a wedding or, or some other kind of ceremony. I, I killed at my father's funeral. Really? And then the rabbi went on after me and tried to, tried to do some time. And I said, uh, I said, rabbi, you never want to follow the headline. <laughs> and that got another laugh. I mean, I, I, I destroyed at my father's uh, funeral. And we had, a, I mean, it was, a, it was a nice tribute and everything like that. But it was, a, I always say a funeral, I mean, you can really, there's so much tension. So the number one rule I'm hearing you say is find funerals to try and practice, <laughs> practice your stand-up up. Yes. So we don't have a rabbi. But as I mentioned, we do have a pastor. When we come back, we'll find out what happens when Jesus, Pastor Aaron, and a Jewish comedian walk into a studio. This episode is brought to you by Defender. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Built for the modern explorer, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. And cargo capacity means more room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. A vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Hello? Hey, Aaron, Charles Duhigg, how are you? I'm doing well, sir. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So I'm here with uh, with Gary Goldman. Gary and, and I called um, Pastor Aaron Kirkpatrick to see if we could help him figure out how to inject more humor into his weekly sermons. Okay, so so tell me about a time when, when you tried to be funny and it just, it did not work. You know, um, I do my best to ban those jokes from my mind. Uh, <laughs> sometimes that's because maybe it's a cultural reference uh, that my... 50, 60, 70-year-old members might not get. You know, I've learned to, uh, to reference the Beach Boys more and Justin Bieber less. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if I want to get a laugh from them. But I will have those kind of jokes I'll tell off the cuff because they just come to me in the moment. And, and those are the ones most likely to fall flat. And I want to I work through with you like a, a particular joke. But before I do, let me just ask one other thing. It's interesting to me that, that you reached out to us, right? You're a pastor. 
why why do you feel like you need to be funny? So I think that there's a there, there's a couple different reasons. I heard somebody say uh, a couple of years ago that in a in a post religious culture that comedians are are prophets and are preachers, and so I think people go to um, to to listen to comedians now for a lot of the reasons that that maybe they went to church before, right? To help us to look ugly things and scary things in the face and then give us hope, uh, give us a story that's bigger than that. I also think that, that comedy is a bit of a Trojan horse. And so if you can make people laugh, it, it gives us all a moment uh, just on a neurological level where we all kind of relax. It's like our guard goes down a little bit. And to me, that's extremely powerful because if, if we're not changing what we do, if we're not open to considering uh, a life change, then to me, I mean, what's the point? That's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's let's workshop really quickly. Um, I imagine you have a sermon coming up. I do. So tell me tell me the joke that you're working on right now. Like like what do you, what's oh, in gosh. what's in your head? Let's let's work through a joke with Gary and see if we can't um, make it funnier. Okay. Um, so here's what I'm working on right now. There's a story in the in the New Testament about this guy named Zacchaeus, and um, Zacchaeus is a, a tax collector who is someone who is absolutely hated at the time, right? So I'm talking about this guy, and, and he has this uh, interaction with Jesus, and Zacchaeus is described as someone who's very small. He's very short. Everything about your life says that we should judge you from the outside um, until he meets with Jesus, and then everything changes in the way that he lives his life. So they tell a story where people are supposed to laugh at this guy, and at the end you go, oh, no, this is the guy you're supposed to learn from. Like, that's a wonderful comedic trick. At the same time, I don't want to tell this story in a way that causes people to laugh at all the things that would be inappropriate for us to laugh at. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, I, I, I think your instincts are, are right. As I think about it, I'm, I'm thinking there are probably children in, in your audience, and the last thing you want them to think is that it's okay to make fun of people with, with dwarfism. But I, the, the, as, a, as a comedian, the things I kept thinking of were being tall in, in I don't know the timing, but I want to say if Jesus referred to it as 31 in the year of me, that, that, <laughs> I think that would get a laugh or just tall was probably five, seven. Like these were very short people. So, so you could say something to the effect that Jesus was a, a, an extraordinarily tall man of that age. He was, he was five, nine or, or something like that. And I think that might get a, get a laugh. The thing Gary says about Jesus's height, that's a total lie. G- Gary doesn't know how tall Jesus is. Nobody knows. But the lie is funny, right? The rule works. The, the biblical text is actually amazing at the way that they pepper these stories with these, you know, both interesting and funny little facts. Yes, For me, subtle. someone trying to communicate a timeless message, you know, millennia later, um, if I'm trying to create not, not a story that's funny, but a canned joke, like you're, you know, in the year of me kind of joke, which is uh-huh. hilarious, um, is, is there a, a way of thinking that helps you get there? Is there a type of thinking that helps you get there? That's a good question. Um, one of the lenses I use to look at the world is through that of, of a six or seven or, or eight-year-old, but with the words and the vocabulary and, and the, the insight and, and awareness of irony of, of an adult, I, I think you can find a lot of humor in that. It, it works for me like gangbusters. That's awesome. The, the other thing I was going to suggest was that there are things in your church that you walk by every day and nobody comments on, but if you were to comment on them, they would get a laugh, just some observational humor. Remember, focus on the small things and then push them to an extreme. 
I don't know if you have a better parking spot than parishioners, but even acknowledging that could be could be very funny. And and if, if that was if, the, if secretly that was the only reason you wanted this position was to have the the parking space because you were you were sick of walking. And and yeah, I, I mean I, if you ever want to hire me as a as a writer. <laughs> and then the next rule. Get in front of an audience. When I gave a eulogy at my father's funeral, I told stories very specific, family. My father would start every story with Stop Me If You've Heard This One Before because he was, he was 89 years old. We'd heard every story, <laughs> but he would start every single one, Stop Me If You've Heard and we never would because we loved the stories. And so I started my, my eulogy with Stop Me If You've Heard This One Before. And my brothers who... Up until that day, we had been estranged for years. I didn't hmm. add this part. We hadn't talked in, in years, but I wanted to speak at my father's funeral, and I opened with that, and they laughed, and it, it um, I think it was Victor Borger who said the shortest distance between uh, two people is laughter, and, and it thawed a, 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 ooh, an icy estrangement very, huh. very quickly. Well, so I was just going to say, um, here's kind of where I, I think there's a, a joke here, kind of doing your your method of, you know, stepping out of your own shoes and finding the finding the joke from someone else's perspective. You know, I have a couple of my kids in the audience, and I think that the idea of explaining what a tax collector is to a child who has no idea of what taxes are, <laughs> right, is potentially really funny. Yes, I think there's a joke there. How do I get to it? How would you do it? Well, the the thing I I think of is the, is the idea that it would be so painful. If instead of them just taking it out of your check, which is the case in, in most people's lives, they take it out of your check. If somebody knocked at your door and asked for a third of your bags of money <laughs> or, or however you're keeping your, your money or whatever your money is back then, whatever the bartering terms. I used to have this joke about how my, old my father was. The teacher asked me to go home and ask, who was president when he was your age and what was the price of bread? And I said... Uh, the president was Julius Caesar, and the price of bread was a chicken. <laughs> and, and so the, 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 I think that would, would get a great laugh, in the, and this is the, the next phase of learning how to write jokes. Certain words are funny. Chicken is funnier than hen. The price of bread was a hen isn't as funny as the price of bread was a chicken. Chicken is a funny word because it has a cuh sound in it. And I know this sounds crazy, but there are words that start with buh, puh, or cuh, and they are funnier, and I nobody can explain why. There's another rule. There's a, there's a lot of rules, it turns out. That is like the secret that you should get the first day of comedy college is that buh, puh, cuh, cupcake, Kit Kat is, is funnier. funnier. <laughs> so so the, the title of this episode is How to Be Funny. Yes. What's the one piece of advice you would give Aaron or someone tuning in on how to be funny? I, th I think the answer is, and if you've had to boil down all my years of, of comedy, is uh, what would I laugh at? What, what, somebody said it, be the comedian that you would want to see. So be the, be the, be the pastor you would, you would want to see, Aaron. And the other thing is to, is to, to follow your obsessions. I, I, you're obsessed with the New Testament, and you're going to find a lot of interesting, ironic, funny things in there and, and, and trust these things that you find ironic or, or funny and, and try them out so they don't laugh. It's not the end of the world. You'll, you'll survive. Give yourself 
permission to fail. Next, next to my bed, I have this quote by Beckett, which says, um, ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. So fail better. You're going to have a new audience next week and, mm-hmm. and, and you can try again. And actually, this is probably the most important rule of how to be funny. You should try to entertain yourself, to to tell jokes that you would laugh at, and then to allow yourself to be terrible again and again and again until you finally get better. Because the thing is, Gary's rules about being funny, they aren't all the rules about how to be funny. They're just what worked for him. But they work because they're about his obsessions and his memories. And most of all, because they guide him to jokes that he thinks are entertaining. I, I, the conversation has been super helpful to me, Gary, and I really, really appreciate your time. Oh, no, and your it, was a, it was a pleasure because you're, you're a thoughtful, nice man who, who respects comedy and, um, and loves it. So, so it's, a, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, if you ever come through the uh, Oklahoma area, hit me up, man. I'd love to come watch the show live. I would never do that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And so let me just ask one other question, Aaron. Um, You know, you contacted us to ask um, how you can be funny. Um, Did we tell you how to be funny? We'll find out on Sunday. I guess so. No feedback, good. Grab your Bible and open to the book of Luke, chapter 19. So Zacchaeus, it says, two things about him that we really need to know. Number one, Zacchaeus was, and we used to sing it in a song, what, Zacchaeus was a, a, yeah, a wee little man, which I always envisioned like the Lucky Charms guy. I thought he was Irish. But Zacchaeus was very, very short, right? And when the Bible says Zacchaeus was very short, you have to realize this is at a time when the average Jewish man was 5'5". So when it says Zacchaeus is short, like to me, everybody was short, right? If they offered me a time machine to go back to to the Jewish time and place here, I wouldn't do it because there are stories in the Old Testament of what they do to people like me, right? It involves a sling and a rock. I'm not going because I'm too tall. Everybody there was short. You know, uh, it's a a start, right? (laughs) Remember, ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. Our thanks to Pastor Aaron Kirkpatrick and comedian Gary Goldman. And by the way, Gary actually did perform in Oklahoma earlier this summer. If you go to his website, GaryGoldman.com, you can see all of his tour dates. And and please look for his new HBO comedy special, The Great Depression, coming in October. Finally, do you have a question about how to do something? Anything? We're here to help. Drop us a note at howtoatslate.com and we might have you on the show and hopefully help you figure things out. And if you like what you heard today, please tell a friend and give us a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. Thanks. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Merritt Jacob is our engineer. Our theme music is by Hannes Brown. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts, and Gabriel Roth is Slate's editorial director for audio. Special thanks to Asha Saluja, Katie Rayford, TJ Raphael, Maggie Taylor, and Julia Turner. I'm Charles Duhigg. Thanks for listening.